0: This is for Palestine, of course, the capital Jerusalem. Unarmed people march into the war when they're shooting them. suppression is a question, resistance is the answer. Long live Palestine, long live Gaza, Palestine, of course, the capital Jerusalem. Unarmed-
1: long time, friends. I'm recording from Darrell Gland in so called Sydney, and I wanted to affirm to all my listeners that. Sovereignty was never ceded, and this was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. I'm grateful to be a guest on this beautiful country and pay my respect and gratitude to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, never forgetting that we are settlers. And even though my parents and many Palestinians who came here were refugees and were stateless, we remember that we still benefit from the colonisation of this land while we continue to struggle to return to ours. I've been on a long hiatus and a lot has happened in the world. This is the second episode of divine intervention i'm back and i promise i will try not to release the next episode in another year i'm i'm going to try to get something or a couple of things out before then so last year i was meant to speak to one of my favorite artists rapper and advocate kareem dennis also known as low key yours truly doesn't understand time zones, so I missed him last time, but we're giving it another crack. Loki joins us from London and he is a vocal political activist and his music is on point and radical. He raps about social and political issues such as class, racism, Islamophobia, Palestine, the so-called war on terror, and he was born to an Iraqi mother from Baghdad and an English father. He's teamed up with other artists, including Immortal Tech.
0: Low key. Yeah. Immortal technique. Harlem
1: And one from Dead Prez, Lupe Fiasco, The Narcissist, and Palestinian artists like Shadia Mansour, 47 Soul, and hip-hop group Damn. It was such a pleasure to chat with him. We touched on Palestine, the way the state of Israel exports its surveillance tech to the world, and about how he got into hip hop at the age of 12. Make sure you follow him on Twitter and Instagram, which I'll link in the episode description, and please check out his music. Without further ado, 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 I'm not sure how to say it, whatever, here is Loki. By
0: risk, look up the definition and tell us what terror is. Only know the definition if the television sell us in public enemy. Number one,
1: they treat them. How have you gained? How, how are you? Um,
0: I think there is a few ways to answer that question. Firstly, I am feeling in a general political sense more not optimistic but more hopeful than I have in a long time. And that's not because the mechanisms of enforcing the parameters of what is politically possible are any weaker than they were before, but it's because I've found that in a nutritional sense, finding those cracks in the monolith is becoming more and more apparent to me on a day-to-day basis. The small victories, the... um, the different ways that we're kind of able to contradict the sort of flawless movement of power are becoming more apparent to me on a a daily basis. Also, aside from that, coming out of COVID, it is meaning that that is meaning that in terms of, you know, making a living from what I do, 70 to 80% of my income uh, pre-COVID was from live shows. And so when COVID happened, it meant that that, that took a quite a significant knock. And so coming out of this, we're getting back into more of the live stuff um, and also other kind of ways of making a living out of sort of political dissent are coming to, um, towards me. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm appreciative and sort of enjoying that as well. And also I'm getting the space and the opportunity to think more. Um, And to think more seriously and more um, critically and aggressively about the kind of structures which are put in place to control us, essentially. And particularly when you look at the Palestinian issue, for example, and the way that people in this country interact with it. um, I'm now getting to really look into some of these organizations who are quite adept at camouflaging their agency. And so, being able to study these organisations and sort of counter surveillance in a way, um, and, and and build an idea of what these organisations are, how they function, what they do, why they do what they do, how they obscure their aims, is 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 also quite exhilarating and inspiring in some ways. So that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm okay. It's been. I think it's been a really testing year, but just grateful to be alive, I suppose. I know that sounds super cliched, but yeah. And, you know, I'm so happy to kind of get this back going in a way because I was meaning to speak to you a while ago. And I guess for those listening, I accidentally stood low key up because I don't understand time zones. <laughs> um, and then life got in the way. I also really love what you said about small victories. I mean, there are a lot of terrible things happening in the world and and even amidst the terror, there are moments of joy and victory. So I I wanted to talk about the Palestinian prison break um, that happened a few days ago. Six Palestinian prisoners escaped the Israeli Jilbawa prison in the north of Palestine, 48. The six men used nothing but a rusty spoon to dig a tunnel to freedom they evaded 40 prison guards, three watchtowers, two walls, two barbed wire fences and a pack of sniffer dogs. How does it make you feel?
0: Great. I mean, but also bear in mind, this is a state that through Unit 8200, um, former employees of Unit 8200 created the Pegasus spyware that infiltrated and hacked the phones of, it seems, around 50,000 people. Also, bear in mind that we only know of 180 journalists who were informed that their phones were hacked. What about the other um, 48,000 plus people whose phones were also hacked by Pegasus? This is a state that, through a policy in 2012, has had in place the moving of Israeli military intelligence in Unit 8200 into the private sector. So you have through cyber security companies like um, Cyber Reason, who do the cybersecurity for um, Ledos, which does a lot of the contracts for classified U.S. military databases. Ledos that were involved in the British census in this country. Their cybersecurity is done by Cyber Reason, which is run by former Unit 8200 guys. One of those former Unit 200 guys said. His his function, um, he basically carries out the same stuff that he did in Unit 8200. His work in Cyber Reason is a continuation of his work in cyber unit. In, um, in, in his work in Cyber Reason is a continuation of his work in Unit Two Hundred. So what we're seeing is this state that has built this amazing surveillance infrastructure and ability to grab data in many different places around the world can still, even in one of its highest security prisons, not ensure that a, a tunnel can be built underground, you know, the, the, the lengths that Palestinians have gone to, whether it's in Gaza or elsewhere, to assert their presence and to resist a highly developed and sophisticated surveillance machine is, is really a story for the ages. You know, it's something that people in hundreds of years, when the story is told, you know, if humanity survives, the uh, destabilization that climate change will bring it. In thousands of years, when people hear about the story of how people in a place like Gaza were able to resist by training underground, by getting balloons that could, Somehow, mark their presence and call out to the world that they are here against one of the most developed armies in the world to a state which is per capita the largest exporter of arms in the world, um, which has the ability to control the seas, to control the sky, to um, control what goes in and what comes out. Um, the only thing they can't un- control in a place like Gaza is underground. And so, you see, this uh, example of uh, the six men that have escaped from this prison using only a spoon, and that this state that has this uh, really sophisticated surveillance infrastructure can't even be sure that a guard won't be asleep in the watchtower, supposedly. You know, it's an inspiration, and it will be an inspiration for freedom-loving people um, many years ahead of us also. And, um, you know, essentially, we are entering, as far as I see it, a sustained period of Palestinian ungovernability by the Israeli occupation. You have 65,000 Palestinian construction workers that the Israeli construction industry is reliant upon. And during the latest uprising, you saw a day when all but a few hundred, I think it was, of those construction workers refused to come in and work. And the Israeli authorities reported it as Losing 40 million dollars from their economy just by those 64,000 or so um, construction workers refusing to work for one day. You know, you look at, for instance, the um, something like 50% of the pharmacists are Palestinian. Something like 25% of the doctors within the state of Israel are Palestinian. When you think of the levers that can be applied to the state of israel and you understand that in the recent military escapade in gaza they saw you know you have to remember the previous ones of you know obviously operation Castle, led 2014 and even since then often israel has has been able to kill more people with less of a scandalization taking place with it being less scandalized really in the way that they were, but also incurring less of an economic cost to the state of Israel. When the resistance were able to stop flights coming into Ben-Gurion, when this comprehensive and wide action was taken and encompassed many different layers of Palestinian civil society and the rest of the world, and you're having armament factories in this country being shut down for six days, You know, for six days, the the factory for Elbit Systems in Leicester was shut down. The local community came out and were absolutely clear that they don't want UAV tactical systems for Israeli drones being made inside their community. There's a level to which the killing has more of an economic cost than it did before. And I think the more that we can understand what are the levers that we can apply pressure to, in order to kind of define the parameters of their logic, then I think we're we're heading more and more in the right direction. And I think that is, is definitely an inspiration to see overall.
1: You talked about the spyware software, Pegasus, which was used by Saudi Arabia, bought from NSO to monitor journalist Jamal Khashoggi before they murdered him in an embassy in in Turkey. Is this only scratching the surface of how the state of Israel exports surveillance technologies across the world? You did mention that there were 48,000 others who were targeted specifically by Pegasus. And I want to explore how the state of israel uses tech to surveil beyond the region
0: yeah well i mean the the interesting thing is that the invisible war which is the data grab has always been bigger than the visible war which is the spectacular acts of violence whether it was the use of what they call in Palestine, prior to the foundation of the State of Israel, Sa'arabin, even in other Arabic-speaking countries, that the intent was to persuade the Jewish communities to become Israeli and to get involved with the Zionist project. You know, in Iraq, you had a presence of Zionist emissaries in the 20s and 30s, basically referring to the Iraqi Jewish community as of a better human material than was present in Eastern Europe. We know that whether it was the pale settlement in Russia, or it was other parts of Eastern Europe, Jewish people had varying levels of limited freedom, essentially, and a limited ability to work in, in different places. And when you compare that to the sort of Iraqi experience, and also not only under the British Mandate of Mesopotamia, but also the Ottoman Empire, Jewish people were among the more wealthy generally in the society, whether it is Baghdad or Basra. But then the situation that you had was the necessity for the Zionist movement to affect the demographics of what was happening in Palestine. So you had. In Iraqi Prime Minister by the name of Tawfiq al in the 30s that uh, Noor Masalha in his book The Expulsion of the Palestinians looks at very directly is the attempts of the Zionist movement to persuade Tawfiq al to facilitate a population transfer whereby you would take Palestinians from Palestine and transport them to Iraq and you would take um, Iraqi Jews and transport them to Palestine. Now that Never took place because of the it was a bit of an aversion. It would have been too controversial for him to do at the time. however, in one thousand nine hundred and fifty one what he did pass was the denaturalization act, which allowed Iraqi Jewish people to let go of their Iraqi citizenship and become Israeli now at the beginning when that was it like i think had a twelve month window if I remember correctly, Abbas Shiblach has a great book about it called The Lure of Zion. And I think it was about a 12-month period. The first month, when you look at the numbers of Iraqi Jews that were willing to give up their citizenship and become Israeli in 1951, it was a tiny amount the first month. The next month, what you had were bombings at cafes which regularly Jewish people went to. And even, it's believed, if I remember correctly, at a synagogue in Baghdad. Now, what happened was... You had the US embassy in Iraq, the British embassy in Iraq and the Iraqi government in complete agreement that this was an Israeli intelligence operation, that these bombs were planted in these places in order to encourage the movement of Iraqi Jews out of Iraq and to go to the state of Israel. It did happen in the months that followed. People began to leave. There's an amazing documentary about it called Insa Baghdad, and it looks at the fact that a lot of the Iraqi Jews that got on the plane and went, they were put in camps and sprayed with DDT when they first got off the planes in the state of Israel, as it was at that, you know, as it had been established, basically, with the the, the mass expulsion of Palestinians. But I, I say that to say that the way Israel has, by necessity, as what it, what Zionism is as a project, it requires that level of clandestine activity and has always in the rest of the world so it's the use of mustaribin within palestine these are people that that appear to be palestinians but are in fact working for the israeli state and are not palestinians and they infiltrate there's a there's the only thing that i've really been able to find on it is um apart from a few mentions here and there in books there's a great episode of a Sandukh al Aswad, um, an al jazeera series that goes into this phenomenon of Mastad uh, bin and the use of these people who speak Arabic like Palestinians but are in fact Israelis working for the Israeli state, infiltrate communities and in some cases even cohabit, marry and have children only to then disappear when people start getting arrested and stuff like that. They're also used in a more shallow way at demonstrations. They will be among the kind of the crowd of people demonstrating and Essentially, they're collecting information and maybe they'll turn around, pull out a gun and arrest someone. So this kind of stuff is inherent to the Zionist project. This kind of disguising of agency, clandestine operations are inherent to the Zionist project. However, one of the when we talk about the more kind of the technology side of it, a turning point has to be understood to be the book written by Dan Sinor, Startup Nation. And it was this idea that through technology, Israel had a key to getting into the the data of other countries. And not long after that, the organization Startup Nation Central was founded by Paul Singer, who is basically the emperor of Elliott Management. It's a hedge fund that owns shares in Twitter. um, I think over a billion dollars, if I remember correctly, worth of shares in Twitter. It owns... Um, it's the major shareholder in the company Arconic, which did the cladding on Grenfell just there, that also participated in the building of the F 35. You know, Paul Singer himself, through his, his organization, the Paul Singer Foundation, contributes to the Friends of the IDF. He contributes to the JNF, who build illegal um, settlements in the West Bank. This organization, Startup Nation Central, was founded with the express purpose. Of moving unit of combating BDS by moving unit 8200, their military intelligence division of the IDF, which has functioned to blackmail Palestinians to monitor their communications and to basically blackmail them to turn them into collaborators with the Israeli state, move former unit 8200 employees and move them into big tech companies. So, Whitney Webb's brilliant article on this found that you had. 25 to 30, if I remember correctly, employees, former employees of Unit 8200, currently working in Google, some of them in really quite important positions. You also had, I think, about 13 currently working in Facebook. The exact numbers are not, but it's in the tens. It's in the tens in each of these organisations that in 2018, Whitney Webb was able to identify so not only do you have that policy from 2012, which is to move the functions of Israel's military intelligence into private companies, whether that be companies like NSO or Black Cube or, or, or Cyber Reason or the Cyber, Cyber Threat Intelligence League. This is another one that when thinking about COVID and the way that it has been used to reconfigure society you have to look at an organization founded by Ohad Zadenberg, former Unit 8200 guy, called the Cyber Threat Intelligence League, which in the United States approached health facilities across the United States and said, pro bono, we will provide cybersecurity. And it's not only health facilities, it's nuclear reactors, it's chemical plants, it's a lot of places where the data is quite valuable and and important. And, you know, you obviously have the history of the promise software, which was downloaded at the White House, which some make the argument was used to blackmail Bill Clinton at one point. Israel has been identified as the number one surveiller and hacker of US database systems. That's no one, no one argues with that. That is a known fact. Now, the scary thing that we have to think about now is when you have This idea, particularly SOAS, so for example, the university that I went to, SOAS, was recently reported that it was a victim of a hacking attempt by a group believed to be linked to the Iranian government. Now, what was alleged was that these hackers hacked into SOAS's emails and sent emails impersonating SOAS academics to journalists think tank figures and some U S military figures to invite them to an event that didn't exist. Now I looked into, well, it's interesting because it's not necessarily not true, but I actually looked into the organization that was the source of it. And I just need to grab the exact name for you, but their name was point proof of this organization, right? This was the source. This was the source Mm cybersecurity company called point proof. Now, were they reporting that because they already have a contract with SOAS? Or were they reporting that, how did they have access to that information? Well, so I looked into Proof and I found over 100 of their employees are former Unit 8200 in the IDF. So, so, so then the question is, how much of this data have people who at least, I mean, and, and the reality is we don't know how many of those former employees of Unit 8200 currently work for the Israeli government because in the case of the cyber threat intelligence league, intelligence league that Ohad Zadenberg leads, he currently still works for an organization which is funded by the Israeli government. So we don't know the extent to which Ohad Zadenberg would be sharing this information with anyone else. That's not to say he is, but is he? It's, I, I, it seems like a fair enough question to ask. But even when you look at organizations like the ADL, Anti-Defamation League, Largely taken as a sort of a movement for the rights of Jewish people in the United States. Well, they were found not only to be infiltrating Greenpeace, but also to be infiltrating anti-apartheid campaigns, also Arab student groups, even spying on Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, this is the ADL. Adam Hochschild, the amazing writer of some fantastic books and one of the founders of Mother Jones, if I remember correctly. They were infiltrating all types of different people in collaboration with the FBI from 1968. But that didn't stop the FBI in 1969 in their own memos saying it seems incredible to believe that the ADL are not furnished by an official from the State of Israel. Meaning that they, and and they said it in the memo as well, they found it hard to believe that the ADL were not in violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act. So what you have is a complete network of organisations which have the pretense of being benign and the pretense of being functioning to do one thing, when in fact, again, it's even you look at the Board of Deputies in this country, an organisation that has such control over the Labour Party that they can literally send emails to the Labour Party saying we would like you to take action on these 10 people, people that they they see on Twitter or local activists. How much suffering has been caused to progressive leftist activists in this country by an organisation like the Board of Deputies? For the entire time that Corbyn was in the leadership of the Labour Party, they would push this idea that they are representative of British Jewry. Well, only in 2020, in their trustees report, they put that they have a close working relationship with the Israeli embassy, that they have strengthened links to the Ministry of Strategic Affairs and the IDF. The question has to be asked, what is this organization doing? And the problem is because people have such an ahistorical understanding of Zionism, even the vast majority of Zionists themselves, they have such an aversion to learning about Zionism in terms of what it means materially and what it has meant materially, that all of this stuff is just blocked off by this big emotional block that, you know, is cultivated in in quite a sophisticated way in our society. So you literally have the state doing all of this kind of stuff around the world, data grabbing on numerous populations around the world. And somehow, we're not allowed to talk about it. And, and and I think it's horrific. It's really horrific what they've been able to do.
1: You touched on so many points and it reminds me of when I was working as a journalist. I was a journalist for a little over eight years and I worked at a couple of national newsrooms and I left that world behind because I was constantly harassed or my editors were you know, contacted by numerous Zionist lobby groups and lobbyists who did not want me there. There were so many heinous incidents, but one that sticks out was when two members of the Israeli foreign ministry, so not even locally based in Australia, they were here and they had a meeting with my bosses asking them why they hired me. Why have you hired a Palestinian? And this has been you know, corroborated by my editors. There have been so many instances like this, but it was incredible to see how they would wield power to isolate and intimidate a young Palestinian woman in her 20s just trying to work, just trying to be a journalist. You've obviously touched on something broader, but I guess I offer my personal experience because it's just so difficult to navigate especially as a Palestinian no matter where you are no matter where you turn
0: the lies between the they
1: After the latest onslaught of Palestinians in Gaza by the RDF and the continued land theft and dispossession, the ongoing Nakba that we're seeing in Sheikh Jarrah, Silwan, and Beta, there seems to be, from what I've noticed this year, a slight shift, perhaps more than slight, in support of Palestinian self-determination and a greater understanding and mobilisation of the BDS movement among people. Why do you think that is, you know, 73 years later, 73 years too late? Why do you think there has been more vocal support?
0: I think because while the internet is a site of mass manipulation through algorithm whereby people can be essentially their entire thought process throughout the day almost can be curated by invisible hands that they don't see where their closest instruments to them that they spend more time on than talking to any member of their family is collecting 5,000 character points on them through which to then sell that information to private companies who can then more effectively advertise to those people. So, you know, there's a lot of data being produced every second on the internet, which is, it was used in, in various nefarious ways by the highest bidder, essentially. However what the internet also has is the pretense of free expression. So it has the pretense that anyone with an idea can put it out there and people have equal access to it. Now, we know that's not quite true, but it's almost true. And so I think, for example, when you looked at the footage of Muna al Kurt talking to a settler from the United States, And the settlers sort of pious hypocrisies about Zionism being seen for what they were. You know, this is the emperor. The emperor's clothes are clear for all to see. You know, the emperor is naked. And what that did was it discredited one of the things that Yusuf al-Kabir, an Iraqi Jewish lawyer in the 30s, described Zionism as a form of militant archaeology. Things like that and short clips like that definitely exposed, but let's not, around the bush the change comes from palestinians within palestine just the same way that israel was defeated in lebanon that was because of the lebanese that was not because of us in the diaspora or us outside but what you do see also is that there was a level of assertion by palestinians across the purposely fragmented palestinian society remember with the Palestinians that are part of the Israeli state, that Israel didn't grant them Israeli citizenship immediately or easily after the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. In fact, there are those that have the perspective that in order for Israel to get membership of the United Nations, one of the conditions was, I don't know if explicitly, but potentially implicitly, that they would have to absorb the Palestinians as part of their population and give them citizenship, the ones that that remained in their homes, who were around 180,000, if I remember correctly, in the immediacy after the ethnic cleansing, and then today now make up about 20% of the population. But they've also been subject to policies which equate to sort of land seizure and the pushing away of Palestinians from the agricultural sector, because the understanding within the state of Israel, is that if you have this level of Palestinian involvement in the production of food within the Israeli state, then that's quite a sensitive position for them to be in. So many will push towards more service industries and stuff like that. But what you saw is you saw a very wide and broad involvement of many different sectors of the Palestinian population and a refusal of the fragmentation. So, well, on one hand, you had very clear articulations of the unfreedom that were undeniable. And not to say that those haven't been there because they have, of course. But the fact that they were coming from Palestinians that were very difficult for the racist orientalist gaze to pick apart in the way they may have traditionally done. So, whether it was regardless of the politics, whether it was Yasser Arafat, this was somebody that orientalists generally, because of appearance, were able to monsterize in their media more successfully. Whereas you had those articulating Palestinian. Palestinians on freedom who were much more difficult, really, for that Orientalist gaze to pick apart in that same way. But then also you had that combined with this refusal of fragmentation by groups of Palestinians that you know suffer a plurality of estrangements who were using their labour really to fight back against that. And so the problem is, is that you obviously have the counter push of the those Palestinians within the Israeli state who then entered coalition with the Israeli government. You have the Palestinian Authority, which obviously is set up for the purpose of suppressing dissent to the Zionist project, has been an essential element of the facilitation of... um, You know, you have to understand that Malcolm X, not long before he died, spoke of the Nation of Islam at that time as becoming an internal surveillance system. And unfortunately, a lot of the organized politics you know if the state of israel or former unit 8200 employees seem to have access to health data of people in the united states or census data of people in britain what kind of targets do you think organizations that are working in australia or britain or the united states for the liberation of palestine will face in terms of data grabbing so you know, the organised groupings are very vulnerable, are very, very vulnerable to becoming the kind of extreme centre which, which upholds and buttresses the status quo. But what you saw is things pumping out from either side. And whether it was the shutting down of factories here whether it is pressure then being brought upon unions here, whereby their membership had voted for BDS back in 2010, but yet they still had not applied it. You know, it's that kind of pressure that needs to be brought on the sort of managerial classes of this this movement, because we need to push them in more daring and radical directions. So I think that, yes, you're right, it seemed different, different this time, but the key is that this time leads to a deeper education, for all of us but also a deeper critical awareness of what exactly it is that we are dealing with and facing and you've got to remember that when there are victories for us here the other side also uses them for quite interesting things so one of the things i've been investigating recently at length is an organization called one voice which is responsible for a project called solutions not sides Now, off the back of children in British schools having their own uprising in support of Palestine, you saw them, some of them were expelled, some of them were suspended, a lot of them were reprimanded. Basically, their acts of solidarity were disfigured as, in some cases, supposedly anti-Semitism the pushback from that was gavin williamson who of course is a very close friend of the conservative friends of israel and is the education minister in this country sent a letter to every head teacher across the country saying that you have to use the following organisations to come into your schools and teach about palestine and one of those organisations is solutions not sides which is the fruit of an organisation called one voice now One Voice shares funders with the Friends of the IDF. It shares funders with the Jerusalem Foundation, which builds in settlements in Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan. Also, it shares funders with the ADL, who we spoke about before. But more than that, on its board of directors previously, it has had the Deputy Minister of Intelligence in the Israeli state, Danny Rothschild, who had to abscond from Britain in 2011. Um, He's the former military ruler of the West Bank. It has had numerous other figures either involved indirectly war crimes or involved in justification of israeli war crimes on its board historically but in terms of employees i've done a profile of 50 of its employees now the head of communications at one voice was a gentleman called rune newman he was simultaneously the head of communications for livni when she was minister of justice and when she was believed to, you know, And she, she, again, had to flee Britain as well, fearing arrest by judges here. Yeah. Out of these 50 employees that I looked at, you had four who were simultaneously employed by the Israeli government and working for this organization at the same time. You had someone that was working for the Israeli embassy that was working for this organization one way at the same time. You had somebody who was the IDF's head of social media working for this organization. At the same time Now this organisation Is now in British schools Teaching about Palestine And so my point is And and I haven't really gone public With this information yet But I have a massive, massive dossier on it And the point is Is that for us, what are victories For the other side They're still doing the data grab And they're still trying to entrench themselves further Into what this stuff is So they deal with a problem and, And keep pushing further Because the solution's not sides One voice project has been pushing to get into British schools at least since 2014-15. And, and and this provided the opening. So even in situations where our kids are full of vim about this and are actually showing uh, a political awareness, which, you know, is great and very useful, it's somehow they are attempting to turn it into the two-state solution, normalize with Zionism, crap that solutions, not sides, pushes out you know let's not forget that the solutions not side project itself was founded by Sharon Booth former employee of the ministry of defense you know when you look at an organization like One Voice it's also funded by the state department as well as like I said the funders of the funders of the friends of the IDF the funders of uh, settlements in the West Bank but also the conservative party funders people who fund the conservative party also fund this uh, this organization so you're looking at a marriage and then when you look at this latest thing that happened with the, uh, the ship that was struck um, off of Oman, and it was blamed on the Iranians, it was run by an organization called Zodiac Maritime. Now, Zodiac Maritime is a company registered in Britain, right? But it was founded by Sami Offa. Now, Sami Offa, in 2011, when he died, was largely scandalized within Israeli society. This was a billionaire, former British Navy. He was largely scandalized because the U.S. government had said to him, we have seen that your ships docked in Iran 11 times while we've had sanctions against Iran. You're trading with Iran. We're now going to sanction you. Now, Sami Offer said, hold on, you should ask the Israeli government what that's about, basically. Then it was due to be discussed in the Knesset, and a note was passed to the chair of the discussion saying it would be very damaging to continue this conversation. When Sammy Offord died in 2011, largely disgraced, right? He was viewed as somebody that was trading with Iran while Israel and the United States were at war with Iran. In 2011, when he died, the Sunday times in Britain published an article saying that his ships had been funneling Israeli agents into Iran to carry out assassination programs. Now, the assassination programs that were running during this time were targeting civilian scientists. Is it not safe to deduce that Sami Offa's company that was doing that is Zodiac Maritime, which is today run by Eyal Offa, who is his son. So when this ship is struck, Israel pretends it's a civilian ship when we have reason to believe it might not be, but also the entire project was done with, a British private intelligence and security organization called Ambery. So when it comes to what Israel is doing, you don't have to dig that far to see British and US involvement in terms of on a very intimate, intimate, intimate level. And I know that is elementary, but I think it's relevant because remember this is this is a, a British company. So then what would be the legal repercussions if a British company is smuggling agents of another foreign country into another country that at that time it supposedly has good relations with because Britain did not have as bad relationships with Iran as the United States and Israel did at this time. So it's just trying to get our heads around the disguising of agency which is happening because it's, it's very, very sophisticated. It's very, very careful. And it's very, very clever. And we we just have to build up that criticality, I think, in in, in people that are passionate about this.
1: I've had to mute myself because every few seconds I just want to say preach. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yeah. (laughs) You pointed out a window before. You pointed out to Grenfell Tower, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So in 2017, the Grenfell Tower fire tragically happened The building was a council housing estate and a few years before the fire it was refurbished with highly flammable cladding and sadly more than 70 people were killed in the fire. Can you tell me about what happened and why you and others continue to advocate for justice?
0: Basically it is the culmination of a bipartisan commitment to a, a necropolitical neoliberal orthodoxy which says that the private interest is better suited to handle functions of government and, and including the regulation of that private interest so it means you, you literally have in the case of when the fire happened one of the flammable insulations that was used in it was RS5000 by a company called Celotex, which is a subsidiary of a French company called Saint-Gobain. Now, at the time of the fire, the technical director of that company was an advisor on building regulations to the housing minister, which was Sajid Javid. So corruption and conflict of interest is not an aberration of our political system. It is the norm. Corruption and conflict of interest that causes death is a little bit more of an aberration, but not as much as an aberration as people would like to think. But conflict of interest is the complete norm. And so with this situation, you know, Celetex themselves have been found in the inquiry to have cheated in the tests. And their ch- tests that they self-administer anyway, because the very body that tests materials for buildings, BRE, was privatised in 1997, and it became reliant on funding from the, the foam insulation industry. And the way they administer their tests BRE is basically say I am BRE and you are a company that wants to test your material. You come to me and you say, I'd like to test this material. I say to you, okay, give me 15,000 pounds and there's the warehouse, go and test it and report your test to us. And so that's what you go and do. And so the companies not only were self-reporting their own tests, Cellatex admitted in 2018 that they misdescribed the results of their test for the RS 5,000. So it's a major, major, major issue, and you know on the night, the cladding in my hair, you know my my friend dying in there with his family um, oh sorry you know if it's okay it's it's you know what can you know what can we say, but you know that situation is basically if 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 you weren't radicalized before then, going through that of course would. And then also even what's happened since then because you have to remember that it's you know it's my conviction that when the story is told the community have been more criminalized than the companies responsible more resource will have been spent on surveilling us than has been spent on, on, on dealing anything anything serious towards those companies no one's been arrested despite all of the information that has come out through the inquiry the companies were even able to leverage a level of immunity through the testimony that they give in the inquiry. So it's, you know, it's a... a You look at corporate and or state crime in British history, this is consistent with how the British state deals with it. It deals with it through so um, containment first, social order first, avoid social unrest, infiltrate the groups, all that kind of stuff. That That is... That's how the British state deals with this stuff. It doesn't doesn't deal with it in a neat package. Aberfan, Piper Alpha, Hillsborough. These people still don't have justice to this day. So we're very, very, you know, what can the state assimilate? Can the state assimilate reparative justice and punitive measures against companies that they subsidise in the first place? to make buildings safe and insulate buildings to lower carbon emissions. Because that's the the scary thing now, is that very few people are talking about the relationship between the Kyoto agreements and the measures that are put in place to help on the issue of climate change and something like Grenfell. Because the idea is that in order to lower carbon emissions, you're going to insulate all types of buildings across the country. Supposedly all buildings in the country are going to be insulated. But the very companies that are doing the insulation are basically regulating themselves. And they have made clear that they are willing to put flammable stuff on buildings. Less than a mile away from here, less than a mile from Grenfell Tower, you have a primary school that has flammable insulation in it that was put there by one of the same companies Yeah, And that's just less than a mile from here. It was put in post Grenfell. It was put in four years after the fire. Yeah, but so this, this is the inflexibility of yeah. necropolitical neoliberalism. It is so much part of our establishment now. This brand, this, this harnessing of regulations as an attachment, as a handmaiden of the accumulation of capital and the generation of capital. This is the system now. And we have nothing in the political elite which shows any resistance to this, unfortunately. And, and, and like I say, in a situation where all the buildings across the country are gonna be insulated to lower carbon emissions, what will that mean in terms of you know? Because it's on hospitals, it's on schools, it's on um, cinemas, it's on university campuses, it's on it's on flats, it's on buildings, you know, and people that are leaseholders. So they've done everything according to Thatcher's idea of democracy of homeowners, home homeowner democracy, and they're being told that actually. You didn't choose to put this insulation on your building. We did, but you now have to pay us £100,000 to get it taken off. Oh, and by the way, you can't sell your block. You can't sell your flat. So people are literally breaking down.
1: It's beyond messed up. What can be done to seek justice? What can people in your community do? What can people abroad do in order to to make sure there's some semblance of, of justice here?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, what can people do? I think, uh, you know, I'm a strong believer in direct action. And I think because everything else plays into the, the data grabber's hands, everything else plays into, you know, giving a political system not worthy of respectability, respect will always be the wrong thing to do in these situations. And unfortunately, people are miseducated who are, Curriculums into a default liberalism, which basically says that the state is an institution with noble intentions. Well, that's not what the state does. Any 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 reading of of how rights have been won in societies tells you that literally, for children to not be beaten in schools, so for children to not have corporal punishment in schools, they had to go on strike in this country. Yeah, literally for people to have the eight-hour working day for children not to be working in mines and in factories for maternal leave you need collective bargaining with the threat of industrial action and we don't have that and that's that and violence are the only things that push people's hands you know you can shame them you know Britain is is very much a place where PR is almost the most important thing but You'd think that the PR from Grenfell would be bad enough for major changes to happen in regulations and for a more confrontational attitude to be assumed with the companies. But that's not. Companies are fine. The companies are carrying on. Kingspan, for example, just won an award in Ireland. You know, the, the companies involved in what happened at Grenfell have not paid any price. You know? And it rings true the, uh, the saying, the corporation has no body to punish and no soul to condemn because that's basically what we see here.
1: 100% direct action is, is where it's at. I wanted to talk about you. You started rapping at the age of 12, at a really young age, and I want to know what inspired you to, to start rapping and what were you rapping about at that age?
0: Um, well, you know, you've got to remember that Britain is, by some estimations, houses... Uh, 105 U.S. military bases, U.S. culture is very much dominant here, it's still you know, with the United States falling from the world's number one economy, with Britain now, its, it's number one source of imports is China after Brexit, before Brexit was Germany. Things will change over the next few decades, but it meant that a lot of us of that sort of generation where we were products of the pre-Thatcher left, but then had the left had been completely Thatcherized by the time we were born, it meant that there wasn't really critical thinking about... But also the interesting thing is there's the kind of, the dialectic of it whereby you look at a city like Liverpool, It having all these US bases around it and this big US military presence meant that the Beatles, when they were growing up, they had a proximity to the US music scene. And so they started to become musicians, mimicking some of the stuff that they heard from the US. But later on, they became, you know, Paul McCartney spoke out against nuclear weapons. John Lennon obviously was against the war in Vietnam, but also funded the Black Panthers and the IRA not to compare myself to the beatles in any way shape or form
1: you are far better than the beatles
0: oh wow well that's definitely not true.
1: that's my hot take
0: so like uh it it was like interesting because with them you have this proximity to us culture then leading to the music but then the politics because of the way that the united states has pursued its interests around the world You know, inevitably, even those who are enamored with it culturally are alienated by it eventually anyway. And so I was kind of in that kind of position. Obviously, we were mimicking a lot of what was happening in the US. We were using American accents. There's a lot of even like there was only one or two rappers here that were, you know, and and not in any way, you know, they seem to be a great group. But I think Hilltop Hoods in uh, Australia also... At one point, um, we're using American accents. It was the same here. So we had some great artists. But and when I say an American accent, you're talking about a population of 367 million people in an area which is bigger than Europe. You know, the, 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 uh, it was like, it wasn't the American accent that we were rapping in. It was like an estimation of what an American accent sounds like to a 12-year-old.
1: I feel like the secret to the American accent is just emphasising the R's. So if you can get the R's, you're halfway there anyway.
0: It was ridiculous. It was completely unnecessary. So yes, it was a sort of a product of cultural imperialism to some extent. But then it also, I was also then politicised by the society that I was in, you know, when the things happen to you that happen. And then obviously when September 11th happens and the way that, sort of our idea of Islamophobia as a form of racism then plays out through state institutions that then start interacting with you in different ways when you are then perceived to have a some type of relation to political violence apart from the fact that only 0.5 percent of all terror attacks happen in the quote-unquote western world Um, and even when you look at it on a global scale it's like in the worst year 25,000 People have died globally from terrorism. If you compare that to pollution, 7 million. If You compare it to car crashes, over a million people die every year. You know, you're more likely to die from a toddler shooting you with a gun or to die using a vending machine or to die in the bath in the United States than you are to die from terrorism. But what we were, were part of this threat inflation cash cow that was produced in order to, and, and a sort of obfuscation, because you've got to remember that people's legitimate grievances are not assimilated by the political system. And we are the sort of children of that, right? because you know we, we care about US imperialism, we care about Palestine, we care about, there's a lot even within the societies that we live in that we also care about, that the political systems that we've been offered, as far as you know, my, my limited understanding, of Australia, you know, outside a a kind of soft aberration in that of Gough Whitlam, these things are not up for grabs, generally. You know, that's why we became invested in the Corbyn project. That's why some in the US became invested in the Sanders project, because these things were not considered up for grabs. They're not even up for discussion. And so when you bump up against the limits of that political system, it it will obviously radicalise you, but it will also that will then affect what it is that you're doing in terms of the music. And with the music, I was doing it from a very young age. I was going to open mics, all that kind of stuff. And so then they sort of came together. And what was I rapping about that age? It was again, just a a sort of silly, childish, but creative and inventive imitation of what I was hearing. Um, I was hearing Nas, I was hearing Gil Scott Heron, I was hearing DMX, I was hearing Tupac you know, the passion in Tupac, (laughs) the passion in Tupac was definitely something that had an appeal to me and had an appeal to many, many millions more. And, and yeah, I mean, I guess I like the theatrics of it, you know, probably I, I liked its power to affect other people emotionally as well. And I think that later on, that has sort of become part of, you know, some of the music, understanding that as a political tool, really. But, then once I became more involved in political movements, it's the idea of, okay, how do those two things interact? How can I use that to affect the material rather than just being this sort of vehicle on the sort of the, the mill of corporate profit? Really.
1: So do you have a songwriting process? Like with your song, Voice of the Voiceless, featuring Immortal Technique, how does that work? Did you reach out to him? How do you collaborate and also come up with, with lyrics?
0: we met I think first time 2005 maybe or 2016 where um, he came to London and did a gig he also came to Oxford so I was the support act for both of those gigs so we met then and at the time I had a manager who was working with him otherwise and so basically reached out to him in maybe 2009 and then basically I recorded my bits of the song. We sent it to him. I was in New York. I saw him and stuff like that. And then he, um, he recorded his bits of the song. And then we just sort of went back and forth with it. But yeah, it's, it was brilliant working with him. But I think that the, the thing with him, which is really important, which is, which is a sort of a shame that the music industry has been able to reassert itself, is that 85% of all the music which is listened to in the world is owned by the big three which is sony warner and universal now who owns these people at and own warner sony are owned by jp morgan Citibank. you know even the development of sony is linked to the presence of the u.s military in japan and heavily heavily involved in the war industry even in the vietnam war but aside from that the uh, you know and universal is owned by vivendi and a few others when you look at these organizations and what they've been able to do now through algorithmatizing. And also because the music industry has massively changed before. If you bought, even on iTunes, if you bought one of my songs, you were literally just buying an MP3. Okay. Now, if you buy one of my songs or if you stream it, right, you're not buying anything, actually, you're streaming it. I am then a vehicle through which your private information is sold to a private company. And that's how I then get paid because the private company then pays me for my services in the purchasing of your information, which they then sold to another company like that who then advertised to you. So it says killed the music industry, but worse than that, worse than that is since 2017, when you had Leo Cohen, who as far as I understand, still has shares in Warner music, worked at Warner for a long time. Um, worked at Universal, and is now the head of music at YouTube, okay, the head of global music at YouTube. Since then, and he said it in his own interviews, we algorithmically are very accommodating to the major labels because they're not just customers or clients or users, they're partners, right? That's Leo Cohen's way of describing it, not mine. And the way that they viewed YouTube was akin, I don't know if you remember it, but the way that they viewed LimeWire and Napster. Because essentially, YouTube is giving to people for free their property. And so when you look at the likes of Leo Cohen, you know, and we can go even further. Lucian Grange, the CEO of Universal, funds the Friends of the IDF, okay? His wife, Caroline Grange, who's the daughter of the founder of River Island, Funds the Community Security Trust, which is, works hand in glove with Mossad, funds the Henry Jackson Society, which is responsible for Prevent, has at least business interests through hotels in Israel, is a Zionist activist. The UK CEO, well, I don't even want to get into that part of it with Universal. <laughs> but, but, you know, and, and remember the seed money for the ADL came from Warner. Yeah. The seed money for the ADL came from Warner. So when it comes to sort of the Palestine side of things, yeah. yeah, and even, even even at Sony Pictures Entertainment, not the, not the record label, what was her name? Amy Pascal, part of the Israel Project, using their inbox in the middle of the 2014 campaign on Gaza. They had IDF General in there, Kobe Marom, organizing from Sony Pictures Entertainment, email inboxes, ways to mobilize to support Israel. They even had Russell Simmons, Leo Cohen's right-hand man, talking about in that email chain that I want to do a campaign to help Israel. We'll get Palestinian and Muslim voices that can talk about Israel's right to exist. That's the structure that this thing is. That's the structure. That's the game. That's the game. And so, uh, unfortunately the push of the music industry in the direction it's gone in has made it a lot harder for those like Immortal Technique or even those like me or Akala to gain listeners because the doors are closed. The doors are closed in a way they've never been in, 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 in my 10 years. Before that, obviously, when you could only get on the radio if you were signed to a major, then, yeah, it's still better now than it was then. But in terms of the music industry, the golden age for independent artists was 2010. 2010, 2016. Since then, 2017, the doors are basically shut.
1: So, I mean, what next for you then? In- <laughs> the doors are shut. Are we going <laughs> to music from you what's
0: gonna happen yeah i mean I, I would like to release music again at some point um when i'm able to tour uh, more properly but the you know the reality is is that in the meantime um i'm gonna have to concentrate on more media-based stuff because throughout the COVID stuff that that you know the main thing for me then as an independent artist was touring and live stuff so you know we'll see
1: Okay, so where can people follow you and support your work? And for those listening, I'll include links in the episode description because if you're not following Loki already, what are you doing with your life?
0: Yes, they can look on um, Twitter, on Instagram, obviously um, I'm there. But, you know, if I was to say any any kind of quote-unquote advice to independent artists today, you are now far better off applying the business model which says i have a hundred to a thousand people who are invested in what i do and and i could have a thousand listeners and have a better living than having a million listeners. And I'll explain how. Like That's now the way the business model has to go. We were able to play the major label game before. So we were able to accumulate millions of views. It's not going to happen. If, if, you're, if your music is seriously challenging to the status quo, but also even if it's just not owned by any of these companies, you'll be very, very unlikely to get a million views genuinely now without some type of bot rigging stuff. Yeah. So therefore, you're better off you could build a music career from literally having a thousand people know who you are. And it's as long as those a thousand people would give you some money every month through a patron. So you, for instance, have exclusive songs that you release through a patron to, to even a few hundred people. If they're willing to put aside some money to invest in what you do, then you can make a living off of music. Otherwise you have to be plugged into the labels and, Once you're plugged into the labels, there's positives and there's negatives of doing that, and so it's just about understanding, kind of getting where you fit in, kind of thing, if you want to pursue a career in music. But Mm. in my, it's my belief that with that move, with the few moves that they've done, which is building the revolving door between companies like Spotify, companies like YouTube and Google, and the music industry, building up that relationship, they've. They're trying to engineer what was sort of 85% of all heard music being owned by them, like 90, 95% of all heard music being owned by them. To so the point where pretty much everything you listen mm. to is going to be owned by one of those two companies. So.
1: And have you got a Patreon?
0: No, but um, it's something that I, I may do at some point so.
1: yeah, yeah, you should.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for just spending this last hour or so talking to me. I've been a huge fan since... Thank you like high school for over a decade
0: no so, way wow
1: yeah I was actually at your concert no in 2011 I think <laughs> no yeah
0: yeah where was this was this Sydney or Melbourne or
1: no it was in Sydney um I think it was at the Marrickville metro wow not metro that's a shopping center it was Marrickville something wow it was the factory the factory wow <laughs> that's, the
0: that's amazing
1: yeah I was like 17 years old and yeah it was um I always loved your work
0: thank you so and much and
1: music and you have a podcast too right that you Yeah, wanna...
0: yeah I mean I've got I've got a podcast on Mint Press I've also got an interview series that I'm doing for an arts company called A Political so please check that out yeah interesting stuff coming up so yeah Thank you very me. much, Sydney. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Undivine Intervention. I hope this has been informative and eye-opening. I'd love to hear from you. You can message me on Twitter at A K. That's J-E-N-I-N-E-A-K. Stay tuned for more.